0: Good morning, all. uh, Over the past few months, we spent some time covering what are commonly called the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus in the first part of Matthew 5. And uh, we've also looked at his initial application of the teaching found in them. And that took us through verse 16 of Matthew 5. Uh, But this passage, as most of you probably know, is actually... The beginning of a larger uh, teaching of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount, and that extends from the beginning of Matthew 5 all the, all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And uh, I would just like to continue covering the Sermon on the Mount in the coming months. I, I don't seem to be able to stop, so here we go. <laughs> uh, but before we go any further, I think <clears throat> it would be a good idea to present an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, considering the audience of the teaching as well as uh, a couple of the primary themes that we're going to see crop up throughout the sermon. Uh, today we'll briefly consider the audience of the of the first uh, part of the sermon here, who, who he was speaking to, and then the first main theme of the sermon, and the next week we'll focus on the second main theme that we can trace throughout this particular teaching of our Lord <clears throat> So uh, I feel the need is always to pray, though, before we get going, so let's take a moment to pray, and, and then hopefully uh, we'll come away with a, a pretty good understanding of where Jesus is going in this sermon this week and next. Holy Father, I do thank you so much that you, uh, you kept your promise to send your Holy Spirit, and that uh, all of us who have come to faith in Christ, have experienced the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has baptized us with the Spirit as he promised. And, uh, and now we are glad that we can pray for the filling of the Spirit at all times. And so we pray, those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior, we pray today for the filling of your Spirit, that through the power of your Spirit we would understand what it is you'd have us to understand in your word this morning that it would make us more like christ that through the work of your spirit we would be come more like him uh, we're so thankful to know that he works in with by through the word to accomplish your purposes in our hearts in our lives and so we come before your word to hear you speak to us today anxious anxious lord to hold on to your promises confess any sins we need to confess, to repent of any things we need to repent of, so that we might be further sanctified and become more like Jesus. So work in our hearts to that end, we pray, for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said this morning, we're going to start looking, first of all, at the audience audience of the Sermon on the Mount, I think there's probably a lesson we can derive from doing that, or at least I think there is, and I hope you agree with me. And then we'll move on to the first main theme in the next week, uh, the second main theme, which can really the second main theme can be summed up in the words, "Do not be like them," to give you a hint about what's coming next week. But first of all, let's look at the audience of the Sermon on the Mount and see if there's anything we can learn about how we should read and understand the Sermon on the Mount, or really how we should do ministry, perhaps. Uh, We first encounter the audience of the Sermon on the Mount in the first couple of verses of chapter 5, where it is introduced. We're told that in Matthew 5, verse 1, that seeing the multitudes, he, being our Lord Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. and Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then we get into what we've been looking at over the last few months, the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which are these teachings commonly called the Beatitudes. But notice there in verse 2, <clears throat> we're told that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and here we're faced with a question, does the pronoun them in verse 2 refer back to the disciples only who were seated around him, or to the multitudes as well as the disciples? To whom was this teaching directed, primarily, in other words? Now, although this particular text is not altogether clear in determining the referent of that pronoun them, is it just the disciples or to the multitudes as well, um, the context after the sermon indicates that more than just the disciples certainly heard the teaching. Um, We're told in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, after the... Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, comes to an end. Who heard it? Uh, We're told, and so it was in Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. And when he speaks of the people in general here, he means those multitudes that could hear what Jesus was saying. That this isn't the way that Matthew refers to the disciples. He always says the disciples when he's referring to them. And it says that the people were astonished at his teaching. And then it says, why? It it doesn't say because they understood it all. Uh, They probably didn't. It says, uh, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's what astonished them. So although the sermon seemed directed primarily toward the disciples who were seated around him, Jesus apparently wanted the other people around to hear as well. And this was obviously, I would say no doubt, one reason why he went up on a mountain in the first place. He went up on the mountain to teach his disciples and all the other people who were going to be listening so that they could better hear him. So it's it's worth stopping to think about what our Lord Jesus was doing here and how this same approach has also been followed by most Bible believing churches throughout history and up until our own time. Um, here at Emmanuel, for example, we aim our teaching on Sunday morning primarily at the disciples. When I prepared my teaching today, my primary goal was to instruct those who are already believers in their faith, in the scriptures. in order to help you better understand the faith, better understand the scriptures, better grow in Christ. But we don't doubt that others who come here may not be believers. They may be visiting or looking for a church or something. They may not be a believer at all, but that doesn't mean they can't benefit from the teaching, even if it's not aimed primarily at them. Now, this is opposite of what a lot of churches these days some of them, so-called churches, do what they call themselves seeker churches, and they make their primary teaching aimed at unbelievers, and that they hope then uh, that the believers who are there will grow anyway. Right? That's sort of their approach to ministry. But you don't really find that in the way Jesus teaches. Now, there are times he directs his teaching directly at unbelieving people. Of course, in those most of those instances, they're scribes and Pharisees, so it's not the way he would. Uh, teach, uh, say, someone like the woman at the well, who was an unbeliever. So we see Jesus in different situations, teaching in different ways. But I would argue that the way we're doing uh, things at Emmanuel is exactly the way that Jesus was carrying on his ministry here in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have a good reason for doing things the, the way that we do. When we come together as a church, the primary focus is the instruction of the saints. But we know that those who aren't believers can learn as well and hopefully come away astonished, not at me, but at the word of God and how God speaks with authority into their lives through his word. By the power of the Spirit, we hope that they'll be convicted. And so this is why we don't avoid inviting people we know to come to church, even if they might not know the Lord, because we trust God to work through his word, just as our Lord Jesus did. But just as our our Lord Jesus did, we also don't water down the message. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll you'll find that Jesus wasn't trying to make things really easy for people who might not have been well acquainted with the word to understand them. Uh, No, he wasn't doing that, even though he knew that they could benefit from it. You don't have to understand everything you hear to understand some of it. You don't have to understand every word that comes out of a preacher's mouth in a sermon and everything he says from the scriptures to understand some of those things and for the Holy Spirit to take some of those things and put them into your heart in just the way that only he can do. And so we've learned from our Lord Jesus to teach the word faithfully and trust the Lord to work. We don't have to make it better somehow. We don't have to say, well, these things are too difficult well, let's water them down. No, we try to explain them clearly. We're not going to water it down for people, though, because that doesn't really help them in the end, and it certainly doesn't strengthen the body of Christ. So there's a way that Jesus did things that we are trying to emulate because we have the same faith in God's work, ability to work that he had. We've learned it from him. So remember this. In the coming years, you consider the people that God would have you perhaps invite to a worship service at Emmanuel, there may be many things that they don't understand. Just as there were no doubt many things that the multitudes didn't understand when they first heard the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the disciples didn't understand some of it when they first heard it. But like our Lord Jesus, we will teach the truth and trust God to work through it as he sees fit. And so with this perspective in mind, then, let's turn our attention now to the first of two primary themes that we'll examine in this extended teaching of our Lord. And this theme is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Now, that the kingdom of heaven is a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is clear from both the context of the message and the content of the message. So we're going to look at those two. Perspectives. First, the context of the message shows that Jesus' whole teaching ministry may actually be described simply as the proclamation of the kingdom. If you wanted to sum up Jesus' teaching ministry, you'd say he proclaimed the kingdom or he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. For example, uh, we can see this clearly in a couple of passages in the preceding context of Matthew. Matthew 3. Verses 1 and 2 says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is descriptive of the forerunner of Christ, right? John the Baptist coming in preparation of Jesus' ministry. This is a description of his teaching. What What was his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preaching the kingdom of heaven and the repentance necessary to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And then we're told about Jesus' teaching ministry in Matthew 4.17. The forerunner of Jesus preached the kingdom, and so did Jesus. In chapter 4, verses 17, we read that from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which was the same message, of course, the forerunner of Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, those are really packed (laughs) ideas there. Uh, And the whole rest of Jesus' teaching ministry explains what he means by that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that's the way it's summarized here for us. So both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus spoke of the kingdom of heaven, and they said it was at hand. In each case, the same Greek verb is used to describe the kingdom as having drawn near with the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. That when Jesus came as the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven came near to them in Jesus in a way that it hadn't been here before. The reign of God, that's what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is, was manifested in the ministry of Jesus in a special way. And the kingdom of heaven was brought to people and that they could enter the kingdom of heaven through trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. For our purposes at the moment, we'll simply take note of the fact that Jesus' ministry is referred to as preaching the kingdom of heaven and also the repentance required with the coming of the kingdom. We'll learn more about the kingdom as we move along here and in the coming weeks, in months perhaps. But we shouldn't be surprised then to find that Matthew goes on to describe Jesus' ministry as preaching the good news of the kingdom. In Matthew 4.23, he says, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's how you summarize Jesus' ministry. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he also healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people, we're told. And then later on in Matthew's gospel, uh, after we're given the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he records the way that Jesus used the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. Notice that Matthew said he preached the kingdom of heaven And then he just said he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he didn't say of heaven, right? The kingdom of what then? Of heaven or of God? Either one. Jesus used these terms interchangeably. Uh, For example, we can see this uh, when Jesus commented on the incident with the rich young ruler uh, who went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. (laughs) uh, uh, He claimed that he had, remember, uh, fulfilled the law but apparently he had an idol in his life he didn't want to give up. Uh, But We're told in Matthew 19.23 that Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So here the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are just interchangeable ways of referring to the reign of God as it's manifested in the Messiah and into which we can enter through faith in Christ. And of course, when his disciples heard it... Uh, They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, uh, but with God all things are possible. Um, And that's true for anyone to be saved, not not just a rich man, by the way. Uh, And Thank God our salvation is possible through the work of God, and it's through the work of God alone. So given this interchangeable use of terms, we're not surprised then to find that the apostles regularly spoke of the kingdom as well, and they preferred the term kingdom of God usually. Perhaps in the case of Paul, because he was referring mostly to Gentiles and referring to the kingdom of heaven might have been a little bit harder for them to grasp than the idea of a kingdom of God. I'm not sure why he chose uh, later to use that term over the kingdom of heaven mainly, but he did. Uh, For example, Luke describes Paul's initial ministry at at Ephesus by saying in Acts 19.8 that he went into the synagogues and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So how is Luke later summarizing the ministry of Paul when he went into the synagogues and tried to witness to his fellow Jews? He taught concerning the kingdom of God. His ministry was summarized the same way that Jesus' ministry was summarized, which tells us he was being a faithful proclaimer of the message of Christ, right? Then at a much later time, when Paul called the Ephesian elders together for a meeting, he reminded them of his previous ministry among them by saying this in Acts 20, 25, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So how did Paul himself summarize his ministry? as preaching the kingdom of God. Now, there are other ways he could summarize his ministry in other places. This is one important way that he did that. Then again, when Luke summed up the, the ministry of Paul while under house arrest in Rome, which ends the book of Acts, we're told in Acts 28, 30 to 31, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God. And teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king, right? (laughs) With all confidence, no one forbidding him. So I hope you can see that faithful proclamation of the gospel always involves teaching about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, I would suggest to you uh, to get out a a concordance sometime uh, or use a Bible search function in a software program such as eSword, which which is free. Um, and look up all the references in the New Testament to the kingdom of heaven or to the kingdom of God. And I think you will be surprised at how strong a theme this concept is, not only in the teaching of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but in all of his teaching and all the subsequent teaching of the apostles. This is a major theme of proper gospel teaching throughout the New Testament, this idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. At any rate, uh, getting back to our overview of the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> I think it's clear from the context that Jesus' teaching and preaching involved the good news about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and about the repentance that this requires of sinners. So we should expect, then, that the Sermon on the Mount itself would have a focus on this theme. If this is what Jesus' teaching was about, wherever he went, then we should expect when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it'll be about that to some extent, right? And we're not disappointed when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. And that leads us to our second point, that the content of the message shows that the kingdom of heaven is a major theme and that this kingdom is both a present and a future reality. It is both now and not yet, as will become apparent as we examine the references of the kingdom throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we, I've talked about this in the past when, when we were looking at the Beatitudes, Jesus came and spoke of the, the kingdom already being here, but also as something that's future. And as we look through the various passages, what we discover is the kingdom of God is here manifested here now in part, but its fullness awaits the future, the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. But it's as though the, the future kingdom has reached back into the past, which is our present, and manifested itself now. And we're already a part of it. And it's pulling us on to the, our future hope. That's a good way to think about it. As I, I've used the example before, and sci-fi bus will get this, if you watch Star Trek or something like that in the past. I grew up watching that. It's, it's like there's a heavenly tractor beam from the future that's reached back into the past and latched onto us and is pulling us to the future. We are already citizens of that kingdom now that comes in its fullness only in the future. Pretty, pretty wild to think of it like that, but I think it's an accurate perception of the biblical teaching. And we'll see that as we look at some of these passages, that some, in some ways the kingdom is now, in some ways it's future. Well, that's not an either-or, it's a both-and situation. <laughs> the kingdom is now, but, but not yet in its fullness. So we'll start by recalling a couple of the key references in our previous study of the Beatitudes. Um, the first and last of the Beatitudes begins with this focus, as we saw in our study of the Beatitudes on the kingdom. In Matthew 5, 3, we're told, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. We're already, as believers, in the kingdom of heaven. And then in 5.10, the final beatitude, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is, again, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. So clearly in both of these verses, the kingdom of heaven is something that we may experience now as a present possession. And, of course, they also teach us that this entails both humility and sacrifice. That's what being poor in spirit is about. Those who haven't humbled themselves to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, well, they they don't experience the kingdom. Moving on in Matthew 5, 19 through 20, which we'll be getting to pretty soon in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, says this, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, and when we get to that text, we'll get into detail about what it means, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is interesting. Here's a future focus here in verse 20. He seems to have the future kingdom in mind. That those who can expect to enter the future kingdom are those who are in the kingdom now. But those who are in the kingdom now, you can tell who they are because their righteousness is a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. At any rate, the kingdom is something that has not yet been fully realized in the present. So we see then that the hope of experiencing the future kingdom demands a righteousness far greater than even the most religious people you can imagine. And that was the case of the scribes and Pharisees. When Jesus said that, he knew what he was saying. All the people around him thought, who's more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Amongst the Jews, they couldn't think of anyone more righteous. Well, we'll see when we look at the second major theme, do not be like them, <laughs> next week, that there's two people he doesn't, that you're not going to be like if you're in the kingdom. Hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, and heathens, right? Those are the two people you're not going to be like, the two groups you're not going to be like, right? So for Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees aren't the most righteous people at all. In fact, they're not righteous at all. They're religious hypocrites. So Jesus is turning everything around here in ways that people would probably have been stunned to hear, at least a lot of them. Maybe the disciples have cottoned on to this already, but a lot of the multitudes would have been shocked maybe to hear these sorts of things said to them, how do we get such a righteousness, though? <laughs> of course, the Bible elsewhere explains how this righteousness is achieved. We're told that it is, it is there actually the righteousness of God or of Christ that is imputed to us. It's what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, which is given to us. <laughs> that we don't become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees in and of ourselves. It's something God does in us. And it begins with the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. This is something you can read a lot more about in Romans 3 and 4, in which the Apostle Paul teaches what he learned from our Lord Jesus on this subject. Um, The the doctrine of imputation is, I'll just summarize it for you now. It's basically that our sin was imputed or reckoned to Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment for our sins. And his righteousness was imputed to us when we trusted in him for our salvation. It, it was credited to us as though it were our own. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 3 and 4. And he, and he says it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And from the law, he gives the example of Abraham. He, he believed God and it was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness. And then he gives from the prophets the example of David to whom God did not impute his own sin, which means instead he imputed righteousness. Paul's saying, well, now we know how that is. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He is the only purely righteous person who has ever lived. And as our representative head, he lived that righteous life on our behalf, fulfilled the law on our behalf. When he died on the cross, all our sins were placed on him. And when we trust in him, his righteousness is counted as our own. And it's based on the imputed righteousness of Christ that God justifies us or declares us righteous in his sight. This is the biblical teaching. Again, go and read Romans 3 and 4 and you'll see what I mean. Uh, I don't have time to get into it in detail today. But this is how we get a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We get it from God. It's his righteousness given to us as though we were our own. And then he begins this process of sanctification, which is his gradual making of us what he has declared us to be in Christ. And that ends in glorification in the future, in the resurrection, when we are finally and fully conformed to the image of Christ. And that righteousness is fully manifested in us. Paul summarized it this way to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The happy exchange, as Martin Luther called it. Happy indeed. So, although our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in order to enter the future kingdom of heaven, when it arrives in its fullness we find that our Lord Jesus has actually satisfied this requirement for us. Because when we trust in him as Lord and Savior, his righteousness is counted as our own by the grace of God. I'm so happy about that. That's the only way we can be saved. So we, 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 we can just look forward to the future kingdom without fear. And pray for it to come with great assurance in our hearts. And this takes us to our next text in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a part of what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here we find that the full realization of God's kingdom is something we should pray for daily. as When we get to that prayer, we'll see it's intended to be a daily prescription uh, for prayer. We should be daily thinking about the kingdom of God, daily praying for the kingdom of God to come in all of its fullness and all of its glory. Because those of us who are in the kingdom now, we long for the fullness of that kingdom to arrive. We pray for it. And We'll talk more about that again when we get there. Later on in that same prayer, in verse 13 of Matthew 6, we're taught to pray, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So here we find that the kingdom requires an allegiance to the king, a recognition that the king is sovereign, right? Uh, whom we serve. In this case, the Sermon on the Mount, or the Lord's Prayer, is directed to our Heavenly Father. And we're to seek his aid to battle sin and Satan. Every day we recognize that we're members of the kingdom. We remember who the king is. We We remember who really is sovereign and who really will bring about his promises and bring the kingdom in all of its fullness. And we recognize that in that process, we're in a spiritual battle and we can win only with the help of the king. And so we, we call out on him to bring his kingdom and also to help us win the battle with sin and Satan as we fight for that kingdom and the coming of that kingdom. As we pursue through our lives God's kingdom to expand in this world. Because as people come to know Christ as their savior, they also enter the kingdom. So we're, we're involved in kingdom ministry, advancing the kingdom as we await its fullness in the future. This involves, of course, seeking the kingdom first above all things. We see this in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How is, how is the kingdom manifested now, right? His righteousness is put on display, display. right? In the church, primarily. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Here we find that the advancement of the kingdom and the righteousness that is characteristic of the kingdom should be the very first priority in our lives. Moving on further in the Sermon on the Mount, we get to one of the scariest two passages in all the Bible. The other one is Hebrews 6. Right, uh, but I think this is one of the scariest texts in all of Scripture, uh, especially if you're uh, if you're not a true believer. <laughs> it should scare you. If you're not a true believer, I hope it scares you into true faith. <laughs> right, but here's what it says in Matthew seven twenty-one through twenty-three. It, it, Jesus is thinking of the future here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That he who does the will of my Father. In heaven, many will say to me in that day, and he's talking about the future day, the day of the Lord there. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? How could they not be true believers? if This kind of stuff is going on, right? But notice what Jesus says, and then he will declare to them, I never knew you. It's not you were a believer and you weren't anymore. It's no, you never were. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's so scary is that it's, it's easy to be so self-deceived, isn't it? These people on judgment day will still be self-deceived. But once again, we find a focus on the kingdom of heaven as a future reality. We also see that the kingdom demands more than just words and outward show no matter how impressive that might seem. They claim to have cast out demons. Pretty impressive. No, uh, it requires a consistent life of submission to the will of the Father. It requires that when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we really mean it. We really want that. The Apostle Paul understood this Very well also when he wrote to the Philippian believers to follow his example rather than the examples of false professors of the faith. This is in Philippians 3, 17 to 20, where he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who also walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, and this uh, walking here is an imagery for how you live your life, right? For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. See, they're not really concerned with the kingdom of God at all. They're concerned with earthly things. These false professors, these heretics that you've got to watch out for. And then Paul says this about those who are true believers, about himself and others whose example we should follow. For our citizenship is in heaven. He's saying that right now. Now, Paul knows full well that the new heavens and the new earth are coming in the future. But he also knows that the kingdom of heaven is here now and that he's in it. And that our citizenship is therefore in heaven there's a heavenly country that we look forward to that we're already citizens of now and from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that both our Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught that our lives must consistently consistently reflect the fact that we're part of the kingdom of heaven. This righteousness, this genuine righteousness should be manifested in our lives. So what about you and me then? I guess it's the question to ask. Can, can people tell by our lives that we're citizens of heaven? And can they sense the joy and enthusiasm in us that ought to be there given that we're citizens of heaven? I was reminded uh, when I was thinking about this, of a guy I briefly knew in college, he was from the Dominican Republic. And when I think of places that you're going to be excited and proud to be from, I got to admit, the Dominican Republic has never been on the top of my list of places. I never think about the Dominican Republic. I forget it even exists, actually. And uh, maybe that just shows how bad an American I am or something. I don't know. But, but this guy was from the Dominican Republic, and he always seemed to want everyone to know it he bragged about how terrific a place it was, often putting down America as not being as good uh, as the Dominican Republic. He criticized everything he saw us do that was different than the Dominican Republic and how everything was better there, right? He thought everyone should try to visit the Dominican Republic at least once in their life if they were going to be like happy people. Uh, And looking back, it's just about the only thing I remember about that man now. But I I also wonder, as I think back on, on his example, if others see such an enthusiasm in me about my citizenship in heaven, I should be at least as enthusiastic about that as that guy was about the Dominican Republic. And yet I don't pull it off very often, like I should. That's what I thought. I thought, man, I should be ashamed of myself because he is mine was set on earthly things and he was far more excited than I often am about the heavenly citizenship that I have. That's what I thought. I had to ask God to forgive me. Bragging about heaven is a good thing to brag about. Wanting everybody to go there is a good thing to want. (laughs) Being excited that you're already a citizen of heaven is something to really be excited about. If you can't get excited about that and I can't get excited about that, there's something really wrong with us, biblically speaking. Of course, that can be remedied through confession and repentance, as I hope it has been remedied in my case. And therefore, I was able to uh, preach this sermon, I hope, without hypocrisy in my heart. (laughs) Right? Maybe you're wondering the same thing now that I brought it up. And perhaps it's something that you too should think about and pray about and maybe even uh, do some repenting of if you were like me. At any rate, uh, I hope we've seen today that we should not be shy uh, about inviting even unbelievers to the worship service to hear God's word proclaimed. And we, we shouldn't let ourselves think like so many professing Christians out there think, that somehow we have to change the message for people. That we can't just tell them what the word of God says and that be good enough. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We shouldn't be ashamed of the kingdom of heaven. We shouldn't be ashamed of God's word. And we should be excited for people to hear it. Even though we know there are some things they'll they'll find hard to understand, just as the disciples struggled to understand some things Jesus said, at least initially. And so did the multitudes. Well, that's an opportunity for growth and learning then. And that's not a bad thing either. Jesus didn't think so, and we shouldn't think so. We've also seen that we should endeavor, by the grace of God, because it can only come about by the grace of God, through his help, through the power of the Spirit, to be the kind of people who live consistently in a way that testifies to the reality of the kingdom of heaven in our lives. When people look at our lives, they should see something alien about us. They should see something that just doesn't quite fit here. They should see citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I pray that we will all trust our Lord to make us bold to be faithful in these ways in the future. So let's pray. Holy Father, I pray for all the believers here this morning, including myself, that if there's any way in which we failed, and I'm sure we all have, and as, as our departed brother James said, we all stumbled in many ways. And I'm sure we've all stumbled in these ways, not fully living out the righteousness of the kingdom as we ought to, not having the enthusiasm that we just get to be your citizens. We get to have citizenship in heaven. We sometimes lose our enthusiasm. We, we grow weary in well-doing. And we ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would just renew our hearts, restore. Door unto us. Some of us need to have restored unto us the joy of our salvation because we're tired and we just, we just need you to lift us up. And so we just pray that you would help us to repent in the ways we need to and trust you more fully, recognizing that we can, through your power, be who you've called us to be more and more as we look forward to the coming kingdom and for those who may not know you it is our prayer for them Lord that you would do for them what you have done for us that through the power of your spirit you will open their eyes to the truth that they would see Jesus for who he really is when he was fully God and fully man in one person and who lived a righteous life a perfectly sinless life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross and so that we might be forgiven we might receive salvation as a free gift by your grace. Oh, Lord, help them to trust in Christ as the risen Savior rose from the dead and who is reigning over all things, even now, and who, who was there to welcome them into his kingdom, having died for their sins, risen from the dead, conquered death on their behalf. Work in their hearts, we pray. And if they've trusted If they trust in you for their salvation, help them to come to us and ask for help to grow. Because anyone in this room would be glad to help them. We'll give you the glory for what you do, Lord, as a result of this teaching and these prayers. For you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.